Let's grab coffee. What's going on, everyone? Uh, this is George Gleefe. We're back with another episode. I'm here with a good friend, Saad Siddiqui, who's the CEO and founder of Shop Bonsai, a millennial marketplace. If you haven't checked it out, you better check it out right now while this is happening. Thanks so much for being here, man. Thank you so much for having me, George. Appreciate it. So tell me one thing, man. I mean, we're doing this. You're young. You're a young dude. All right. We're two young bucks, but you're uh, you're both young, early stage entrepreneur, but you've built a, a really great p- platform. Shop Bonsai is one of the fastest growing startups in Canada. How did you manage to do that? Oh, man. <laughs> I, it's a loaded question, but I'm going to start. I'm going to start I, hot. I take very little responsibility for it being a one man job. It's so complicated. Um, I think it starts out with a really, really basic idea. It doesn't have to be a good idea. It just has to be an idea that kind of makes some sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then from there, it's all about execution. Like if you can solve a real problem and then you know, build a team around you who knows what they're doing, as opposed to someone like me who knows very little about most things, uh, you delegate, you set clear expectations, and you, you know, define requirements. That's kind of how you can grow really, really quickly. But yeah, I don't know if that... It's probably not going to answer your question because it's a question. But I like it, though. I, like I guess it. you could build a company it's tough no it's a good sign of a good leader man but i think this this segues nicely into something i wanted to ask which is on the ideation side like how did you come to the kind of tipping point where you wanted to start a marketplace did you have previous experience like what, what was that what was that whole process i was in university um i think the the kind of genesis for the app came from a very personal pain point it was like super nascent in terms of an idea mm-hmm. Uh, not really sophisticated, not solving a huge market problem. Uh, if a venture capitalist asked me two questions, I would crumble about market size. And so the idea was really simple at the time. It was like, let's build a marketplace where people like me can shop. It was around the time when Harry's and Warby Parker started to become like the preeminent direct consumer brands and people like me were buying Frank and Oak, you know, as a kind of product. But the thought process was, why don't we build a place to aggregate all that? And we kind of stumbled into a bunch of realizations and if you're, you know, just capable of adapting quickly, you kind of figure out that, uh, you know, that's actually not the problem you're solving. That that maybe is the genesis to look in a certain direction where you're passionate about something, but the problem is a lot bigger and there's actually a whole market. Uh, and we were actually sitting at the confluence of two or three different industries and very big changes in those industries. So we had to kind of adapt and listen to what was not working. So in our case, it was a lot about, you know, uh, the, the shift in e-commerce, the changing customer journey, uh, the role of content on that customer journey. So really, really different things that are not at all anything to do with shopping for men. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but you can kind of see like the tip of the iceberg is having an idea, which is why people always say, you know, how do you come up with ideas? Like I can come up with ideas in the bathroom for five minutes and they're probably okay. And just as good as an idea that you come up, you know, after 15 hours of intensive research, probably. I think the idea is important, but just actually not that But the execution, yeah, like, the, the great directions of our brands that you and I use, like Snapchat, like what is that as an idea? I mean, if you're to sit down and look at it critically, like it's an application that allows you to send pictures, which disappear for, you know, with an intention that probably wasn't super kosher at the outset. So if you look at a product like that, I mean, now it's the only way that people under 20 communicate, I would argue. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, the idea is important, but really not that important. You brought up a good point too, where you said it was your pain point. That often happens. It's either something that people realize that is happening to other people or to themselves. How did you go about validating your personal pain point with the masses to make a consensus good enough to start this uh, this app? Yeah, I think we started the app honestly really ignorantly, um, and we just started building without a real understanding of the product, uh, the need for the market, and the product as we originally conceived it was not the one with which we found PMF, like our product market fit. Um, 
it was just my personal pain point, which led us into an area which became interesting to explore. And so now the problems we're solving are very, very different from the problem that I articulated to you at the beginning of this conversation. Like we're solving problems of how publishers monetize their content through commerce. We're solving problems of how retailers can reclaim the customer in their like in the in the purchase. Like so, very different problems um, that maybe we ended up you know stumbling upon by looking in a direction where I was had a very very kind of minute end user pain point. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that the problems we're solving now are very, very different. They're, they're like, you know, true uh, industry pain points where there's billions of dollars at stake. And, you know, you can kind of look at it like, wow, this is a really cool wedge we found. But it, we were kind of led into it by another idea. So I think the lesson there, if there's one that can be exported, not suggesting that my experience should be exported and used by anybody because, you know, <laughs> do it at your own risk. Um, or so, but I think that like the lesson there is that you just have to be able to really dig deeper into what the real problem is. Um, cause it's easy to build an app for 18 to 25 year old men with cool products, but is that really a problem? Don't know. When did you know, like, when was that pivotal point of success where you're like, you know what, this thing's actually working. I'm gaining traction. It's happening. I think you listen to people around you. Like if you concede very early on that you don't know a whole lot about most things, uh, you talk to more customers, you talk to, you know, in our case, it was retailers and publishers. And you start to really look at the dynamics of your business. Like, okay, where is supply coming from? Where's demand coming from? Um, you know, a big litmus test for me has always been, what is the time it takes for somebody I'm talking to to understand what we're doing? Mm. And before the time to understand on a consumer pain point that I had was like this long. And now the time to understand when we talk about, you know, resellers need a new way to sell their products. So we built a marketplace that allows them to do that. This, the time to understand is like this bit. <laughs> and, oh, publishers need a way to monetize their content. This is an alternative to the paywall. This much time <laughs> it takes to understand that. So that's a huge litmus test because I think people have an innate view of, you know, what is a problem and what's not. Um, so yeah. What do you think? I mean, I found really interesting looking at your background specifically is that you your background academically is in philosophy, yet you ended up venturing in business and entrepreneurship. Do you feel like your degree actually helped? And if so, what was it about that that actually factored uh, as a driver? That's a great question. Um, I went to U of T, I said political science um, and minor in art history and like rhetoric. So and it qualifies me in absolutely no way to at all. And I think the, the, the couple of ways that it has helped and I see it helping a lot. The first is construction arguments, really important. Um, every time you're developing a business case, using different you know, levers, you're constructing an argument. You're saying that this should happen because of reasons X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z are premises that are rationally connected to one another to form an argument or an opinion. So that was like part of like the philosophy and like political science stuff. Um, and then I think the other part is like, when you study the humanities, you learn a lot about, I guess, tangential how well you articulate yourself. And uh, if you run a company or you even work at a company, you know that one of the biggest barriers between getting stuff done and not getting stuff done is people understanding what needs to be done. Like understanding is one of the things I really underestimated as being important in running a business. And if you can say that your skill is being able to articulate yourself, surely that would benefit <laughs> your ability to you know, help people understand what you're saying. So I think the humanities have been so helpful. I would, like when we interview people, um, you know, skill and tech, we, we, we think that skills can be taught, but those kind of like, you know, like you can learn how to do, uh, a really good example, we brought on a great talent who's leading our growth team now. He's never run a growth team before. 
doesn't know what a growth marketing stack is, but he has the technical skills that can be acquired, but he's got the soft skills to be able to go out and learn and, you know, read a bunch and figure out what is the best practice. So I think employers are also make, you know, going through that shift now where um, it's great if you have a skill, but that's really not the true growth, you know, of an individual. It's like, like you can become the best of a certain skill, but if you have those soft skills, it's like your growth can be exponential. Yeah. Well, you certainly uh, display this as well. I mean, relatively starting shop bonds out of uh, coming out of university. And I think that what, what's interesting about that is um, you, I mean, you essentially took that road as well, right? Like you were learning as, uh, as you progressed throughout this, this venture, maybe for people listening, because I'm sure a lot of aspiring founders are listening to, uh, right now to you and you're hearing your story. What advice would you give to someone who was in your position coming out of uni, still kind of young, but, but has this ambition to start something big, because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, I felt this as well, being 25 currently. Um, sometimes you run into those roadblocks. Well, you're young, George. What do you know? You know, I, I'm not sure if you've ever felt this, but how, how did you actually navigate through those kinds of uh, pitfalls? It's a great question. Yeah, there's a long answer and a short answer. I think the short answer that I would, uh, like, I'd go back to myself three years ago and say, do you really want to do this now? And if so, why? Because... There's like been a couple of, we were just talking about this at dinner last night in our kind of management dinner. Um, there's been a couple of inflection points where you're like, okay, this is no longer, you know, something that you do for fun. And it's not your side hustle. It's not a Shopify store that's built and you're kind of selling, you know, like stuff. Like on passive the side. income. You're not, selling, yeah. so you're not selling stuff on the side. Like this is a real business and there's, uh, you know, 30, 35 salaries depending on you. That weighs down on you a lot. And I think that, you have to ask yourself that question when you're starting is like, am I really prepared for that? A lot of people just jump into it being like, oh, this is like the thing. Every single, particularly in like collegiate age, uh, well-educated people who have access to a lot of resources believe that this is a rite of passage. It is not. <laughs> not everyone needs to start a company. A lot of people shouldn't. Um, it takes a very specific personality type uh, that for a long time I questioned if I even had. Um, and whether or not I have it, I'm like too in too deep <laughs> to Back right I've had to develop it. So first and foremost, I'd say I, I, I would ask yourself really long and hard, do I want to do this and why do I want to do it? And a lot of the reasons that people cite are, in my opinion, not good enough um, to take on this level of risk and responsibility. The second thing is uh, your question was about experience and like overcoming the fact that um, am I experienced enough? Do I know what I'm doing? You know, am I going to be the least intelligent person in the room? I think that you solve that in one of two ways. You start to surround yourself with people who are way smarter than you know what they're talking about. And for a while, that actually works. And you learn a lot from people and it kind of the curve goes up. And then you realize that actually, you know, there's something really awesome about naivety uh, to, to a certain extent. And by not being jaded and not having had 10 experiences that are the same, you actually are open to a lot more new ideas and you're very receptive um, so we always talk about, actually, I'll, I'll read you a, a quote from Paul Graham that someone just slacked me as this started. Somebody said, so Paul Graham says, if you're the CEO of a fast growing startup, the mistake you'll make in the next year that you'll regret the most would probably be a hiring mistake, possibly hiring someone established, which you'll feel you should do now you're getting, because you're getting big and which VCs will strongly encourage. Not saying you should never hire anybody established. You'll probably have to eventually, but your need for them is not as urgent as your fear or your VCs claim. And that really stuck with me. Uh, literally just as you were starting this call, you know, which that came up on my screen. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. um, there's like a, there's a optimism and a 
I'm going to get everything and anything done at all costs that comes with naivety that sometimes pushes impossible into possible. Um, That's a great answer. That's a great answer. I'm I'm kind of curious. How old are you now? I'm 22. You're 20. 22. (laughs) Wow. That's insane, man. Okay. Well, first of all, kudos to you, dude. I mean, I always get this to me, like, Someone this morning was like, oh, man, you look like you're in early 30s. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's the beard, buddy. Weird. But, but, but that's amazing, man. Really I, yeah, good on you. I was just clean shaving this morning. Okay, that's why. That's why. So you look a little. <laughs> there you what, do you, what do you do? And I think you spoke uh, with Manu, actually, uh, on this topic uh, on a panel. But just hearing you kind of go through this, I mean, obviously, it, it will be overwhelming at certain points. I really like the fact that you're super transparent about not only the romanticizing of entrepreneurship, although it is really great and it has a lot of uh, amazing kind of features to it, but it is not for everybody, just like a lot of things aren't for everybody. Like it's, you don't have this kind of romanticizing with maybe medicine, with doctors, you know, and for some reason at this point in time, you know, being a tech entrepreneur and raising VC capital is just so, so sexy and like attractive and whatever. But with that comes a lot of uh, challenges. One of them is just maintaining your personal mental sanity, right? Like just being mentally fit throughout this, process how has that been for you like what are some of the things that you've maybe gone through or or overcame there's a certain degree of absurdness in all of this and i think when you realize that like crazy stuff happens and there's a lot of highs and a lot of lows like literally every day like today there's been yesterday was a low day today's been like a moderate average this calls a high for sure <laughs> um, Thanks, you just you just ride the waves man honestly you just ride the waves and i think like you just like develop this thick skin where like, ha, like how could this possibly get any worse? And then you laugh about it. Like nothing is okay. Objectively. Like the problems you're facing is always like, Oh, the gas tank is empty. I have to go out and raise a hundred thousand dollars by Friday. And if I don't, we're gonna have an awkward conversation on Monday with the team, like things like that. uh, But there's really nothing you can do other than put in your best effort. Um, And obviously, you know, be diligent or allow the company to arrive at a point where that's something like that can happen. But, you know, this is the nature of the of the game and the space. And to your point about ro- the romanticization, of, I think it's, like, really criminal, to be honest. A lot of young people go out, they raise a lot of money because they're charismatic and they're, you know, able to dangle a, an amazing vision in front of a venture capitalist. And a lot of venture capitalists make the mistake of, of investing in people like me just because they look like me or they talk like me. Um, that's not a good reason to invest. That's not a good reason to give someone $10 million. Um so I, I think it's really problematic. Yeah. And, and a lot of people will say how much money, I'm so glad you haven't asked me how much money we've raised, maybe because you already know, but a lot of people will say how much money have you raised or how many people do you have? These are not metrics of success. Every additional dollar we raise is firstly dilutive. So like bad luck for the founder. Secondly, exactly. it's a dollar you have, you're expected to return at a 10 X multiple or a higher multiple. So every time I see a dollar that we take in, it's like, oh, I got to make that 10. So that's yeah. like a little bit of pressure. Uh-huh. Well, it, it actually reminds me of I was uh, I've I've recently started the uh, the show Silicon Valley. I know I'm super late to the game. Don't great judge show. me. I, yeah, I just got crave. They, they uh, hit on the head all the time. I, I think it's like super funny. I, I don't even think it's parody. It's like it's so. <laughs> it's the real man. It's real life. It it should be considered documentary journalism, not legit. Yeah, yeah, because and what you were saying reminded me of the episode I actually watched last night before I went to bed, which was um, basically Pipe uh, Piper Pipe Wow Pipe Piper wanted to raise uh, some money, uh, but instead of going for the high valuation, uh, you know, Amanda Crew uh, was one of the characters, actually encouraged them to take less money so that it wasn't as dilutive because otherwise they'd have to execute on that yeah. front. And if they don't, they're, they're essentially fucked. 
there's there's a great episode in Silicon Valley about how to treat venture capital. I don't know how many VCs are not in, so I apologize. But if you you know, it's a great episode in front of how venture capitalists invest, and it's like they show boardroom after boardroom, boardroom. <laughs> you know, educated, you know, thirty five year old white guys wearing quarter zip polos from Ralph Lauren, MBAs, and, and you know, and like, and his strategy to get the money is to berate them, and they're like, it's oh, to be an a hole. Young guy who looks trendy is berating me. That, $10 million. Like, I thought it was really funny. I mean, obviously, that's not the level of rigor that goes into BC investing. It's a lot higher. But at the same time, as like, if you explain this to my father, who is, you know, a 63 year old Pakistani man, uh, when he looks at the space, he's like, that's all he actually thinks it is. Like, it doesn't make any sense to him, right? Like, he's an old school banker. So, like, for him to, like, it, it, this whole world makes no sense to him. Was that challenging uh, growing up? Like, I mean, you know, maybe having immigrant parents and, and just, explaining this whole tech front to them not going through a corporate route i have my, my dad wasn't banking as well so yeah. uh, I, I really empathize on this front so i was very fearful uh at the outset when i tried to articulate what i was doing to my family um what they would react as because my path that was prescribed to me was to finish u of t go to law school um go work at the best base street firm and it was all going to work out. Like maybe work at a great consulting firm a couple of years in between and then just become a lawyer. That was the plan. And obviously I've achieved 0% of that plan. Um, and when was I it your plan or your parents' plan? Like who's... Oh, that, that plan was prescribed to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my parents' plan because that's the kind of immigrant model of success is, um, you know, emulate what is uh, like societally successful. Because I mean, you come from a background where there's an insecurity to... It's not about belonging. It's about stability. And so they're looking for the, the most clearly um, clearly understood version of stability. And within society, the most stable thing you can do is be the best base street lawyer and make a you know, crap ton of money. Um, so when my parents had that lens and I told them, here's the opposite of stable, but with a lot more upside, I was surprised to hear my dad at least be very, you know, my mom still doesn't like it. And she's like, I should like go to law school. But <laughs> um, my dad was like, actually, you know what? You're right. Because as an immigrant who was stable and did very well in the banking field in Toronto after, you know, immigrating here in the early eighties, like um, I, I hit a ceiling and my last name and my accent didn't allow me to go beyond a certain point. I could only ever be a VP, even though my talent and my capabilities greatly exceeded that of what he believed, you know, he should have earned, but he's like, I, I hit a ceiling and there wasn't a place for somebody like me to ever manage or run a bank. Um, so when he came to that realization for whatever systemic barriers, there are in institutions like, you know, big, big four or five banks in this country. Um, he was delighted to see that I had a path to owning an institution um, if, it, if we were good enough. So it was a very interesting take. It was like a lot more thoughtful than I was expecting. I thought it was going to get beaten up, <laughs> um, but it was, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It must be difficult. And I know, I mean, much like you, I actually, uh, my parents were very supportive in really any endeavor I did, whether it was this podcast, uh, co-founding another app or, anything I, I just wanted to do that was kind of venturing outside of the norm. Yeah. Uh, they were always the first ones to support and be like, good on you, man. Let's at least try it. See what happens. At least stick with it, be consistent. And then you can judge whether it's actually working or not. Right. But uh, so, so, but I wanted to bring this up because I'm, I'm sure someone listening might be actually going through this, uh, this struggle. And sometimes it's difficult, man. Us immigrants, we're close to our families and, you know, family culture, especially in, in our parts of the world, as I understand it very well is, we're very close. And so what, what they want and what they believe in, it matters a lot to, to our thinking. Yeah, I think the fundamental concern that uh, immigrant parents have, and I, I'm generalizing 
by a huge extent. I know Pakistani parents have this view of like our, our mission when we landed here, we accepted our fate as a transitory generation. We gave up our, you know, parts of our culture. We maintain some parts that are really important to us. We maintain our faith, but we, you know, we gave up our family members, our food, you know, our way of life, all these things in exchange for some form of stability. So one can imagine that I mean, quite reasonably when, you know, this new Canadian kid that they've raised here was like, I hate my parents, like blah, blah, blah. Right. Like, Oh, my parents are so uncool. I wish I had, you know, like another parent to let me do more stuff. Like, you know, that was like me not too long ago, but when you like actually appreciate the, you know, what they're trying to establish, uh, you understand why this kind of a direction is challenging. But I think if you have a conversation like we're having now, you unpack that they're not being oppressive necessarily. They're aiming for stability. And if you can articulate how this would perhaps be more stable, then, you know, then I think you can, can, can actually convince those, those parents, like your parents, that it's a good idea. That's, that's, that was my approach. So it worked. I like it. I like it. I want to juggle uh, this question to you because I think it's, it's important as well, talking about this whole entrepreneurship, the romanticizing of it. One of the things I, I usually tell people as well is having, especially having seen it from the public side, like when, when companies IPO, which is really like the Super Bowl of entrepreneurship or they exit. So now I'm on the other side. Um, but one of the things I say is like, if you think of Shopify, when they first started, sure, it was your typical startup, you know, like a couple, couple dudes, you know, working on something that they really thought was a pain point. And then it escalated to billion dollar company. They IPO would in 2015, like massive IPO, one of the biggest, if not now the biggest tech company. Um, and so um, the culture is going to change too. Your role is going to change as the founder. And I think like this, you know, we're three guys in a basement or in a garage, just shooting the shit, playing video games in the middle of the day. Like that's eventually going to wither away and you're going to have to put systems. You're going to have to formalize. Like as you went through that, what was your, your biggest kind of concern and, and what things did you have to change within yourself to, to accommodate that kind of uh, difference? Yeah, we were talking about this. It was great timing. We we're just having but like we're fighting on how to grow as a manager um, within the company, a couple of the you know, leadership team members were saying that, uh, or at least my personal reflection was that um, I have been able to build a team around me and I generally try to speak the least in every meeting. That's like my objective. How do I speak the least? Because if I'm speaking more, something is not working. I haven't built the proper infrastructure. I haven't hired the right people. I should really not be making decisions. I, it's an amazing feeling now. Like it, it took a long time and I take like 2% of the credit for this. Not even as been a couple of people here, like our CRO, Andrew, who's just done an amazing job of like bringing together people and making them, you know, like perform uh, and getting the right people in the room and inspiring them to like do things the right way. Like to be able to sit in a meeting now and, you know, claim to know the least and follow and simply thumbs up the direction that's been proposed by, you know, your team members who have a well thought out plan is an amazing feeling. Um, it was not always like that and it still isn't always like that, but we're certainly a lot closer than we were two years ago. I think one of the bigger personal growth points is like, um, you have to go through everything yourself first. So if you're going to, you can't just hire somebody to build a sales process. You have to go sell, document the process, fail a couple times, optimize against those failures, and then be, then get somebody to assume your learnings. Um, you can't just go out and you can't hire your way out of problems. That was a big mistake we made. We were also lucky because we raised a lot of money early. So we had the ability to just go out and hire people en masse. Like we had a huge hiring spree about a year and a half ago and there were a bunch of people hired. Some of them were the right fit. Some of them weren't, but like what else happens if you don't know what you're doing and you've raised a lot of money? You're just like, okay, let's hire people who are smarter than us. So 
there's been a lot of personal growth, I think, um, particularly as it relates to knowing where I can add the most value. And I'm very passionate about product. I love the way our app works. I'm super interested in the, the design and the, the interactions of the app, but I opine very little in that process. And if I have major concerns, I have a point of contact where I can address those two and it kind of works down the line and people make those changes or they don't make those changes or they have the final say. Um, but you know, 18 months ago, I would have been dictating what the wireframes look like. Now I wireframes get approved without me seeing them. So that, that's a really big change. And I think it's because I can add value to the wireframes, but there's probably people here who could do a much better job than me. And I'm probably better off going out and signing a new partner or raising more money or hiring a new person, like things like that. What's the biggest advice you'd give to someone looking to raise money who's a little young as an entrepreneur? And I don't want to comment on, on the number or whatever. I just want to, because I think there, there's a big learning here in terms of being successful at it, but also executing uh, yeah. post, post cap raise. I think the raising money. So there's, a, so there's two parts, like, like why are you raising and how do you raise? So mm -hmm. why you're raising is really important to get it down. Like a lot of people, like I'm just going to raise some, some amount between zero and $500,000 to start. And it's not really clear why it's just because it sounds like an attainable amount of money. And maybe that's a good reason. I don't know. I, that's certainly what we did. We didn't have a very thoughtful approach. I would say that if you can go and raise money with like some evidence that the thing that you're building works, you'll be able to raise whatever you want. Because the biggest problem, like VCs or generally like the venture market has got way too much money and a huge deployment problem, I believe. Um, so they're looking to give away money and fund managers have to get rid of money. Like there's just no, there's no question about that. So there's an abundance of money. There's actually not a lot of deals. Like we were talking about how sexy it is to be a tech entrepreneur these days, but there aren't that many deals that are like serious. It can yeah. be so if you're serious about it and you can go out and get data to support your vision, like even like I'm talking about like run a Facebook campaign that's showed that people clicked on your ad for this product and then build a story about how that constitutes intent for your product. That's a great way to start and like puts you already on such a higher playing field than everybody else. Like we did not do that. Just to be clear, we had a couple people who believed in us and the team and thought we were like good people and that was enough. But like you will be set up for so much more success if you do what I just said instead of what we did. Um, so that's like why you raise. How you raise is really interesting. Um, I work with one of our advisors. His name is Ben Smith. Uh, and he works with me and I, I he's my coach. He coaches me just like, um, you know, you'd have a sales coach. I have my own sales coach. And his job, what he really taught me the importance of was the value of uh, growth and momentum and FOMO. These are the three levers. Can you show growth? Can you show that the growth is happening really, really rapidly? And can you instill in people the fear that they may miss out of the next unicorn? Um, so that's like tactically how you execute. And there's a lot of nuance to that, but those would be the two things. Like if you have data and proof that something works and you can raise in a way that leverages FOMO and momentum, you will raise whatever you want. This is true for the first 150,000 and the, the next 15 million you'll have to raise. It's the same levers, different criteria, same principle. And, and talk and thank you for that. I, re, I definitely agree with every point you made, especially around just kind of showing traction early days. We kind of did that with Bookback, which is one of the apps that, that we co-founded. But um, it was it was bootstrapped. It was three of us together, you know, myself and two of my friends who are technical. But, you know, we built the app. We, we put it on the store and it started gaining traction. And I think from there, at least you have something tangible. Maybe the step two is figuring out a monetization model. And if you can't, if it's like pure SaaS, uh, then going out raising. But at least you have something to... To, to showcase for so definitely agree with that point one of the things you said earlier i recall you were saying that uh, how much you raise is not a metric for success 100 percent agree to that what would you say 
currently is your metric for success that you like when you look at chop bonsai and you say like we're successful because what how would you fill that blank yeah i mean it depends on so we're now a much bigger company than we were two months you know, two years ago even two months ago but two years ago we would say that the number of downloads we're getting and the engagement of like monthly actives versus daily actives would be our success metric our kind of north star is changing too as we're changing as a company uh, a lot of our North Stars focus on revenue now, like what type of revenue we're producing at what margin, you know, is it the right revenue? Is it scalable revenue? Is it, uh, you know, the kind of revenue that's consistent with our product? Like it's a little bit more revenue based now, um, but that's on our kind of growing B2B business. We also have continued to have the app and the metrics there are all about engagement and stickiness. Like, can we get people to engage the way we need them to? Is the app sticky? Is it an experience that people love? And if you really try to unpack like, behaviors of a user loving a product they're not uh you know they're not difficult to track you have very we have very clear understanding of what is somebody loving an app our app versus just liking it and there's a like hundreds of different submetrics there that i'm sure our team can bore you about for days but <laughs> net net we have different metrics for different products but the overall company is always about revenue you know, is there, is the company producing revenue or is it on track to, it's not so much, you know, there's always a way to produce, like we can sell the desks, like we can sell and that's revenue, right. But that's really not the kind of revenue we're looking for. Um, hmm. yeah. Okay. And, and looking at, at the, the company now, you have 30 people, is that correct? 30 some, somewhat. Yeah. Right. What are you looking for currently? Like when you, I mean, you, you touched a bit about this, but in terms of just the kind of aptitude on top of that, like the EQ on top of IQ. Um, if someone hits you up right now, maybe after this podcast, you're maybe hiring for a BDR, like business development representative for those listening. Um, what, what are some of those qualities on, more on the EQ side that I'm interested in? The biggest one that we talk about a lot is grit. And we have, it's hard to assess grit in an interview. Um, we have scenarios. So there's a couple of things. Like one is like, we always have some kind of a take home component in our, kind of uh, evaluation process. I'll tell you right now that the university you went to, I've never, ever thought about what university somebody's gone to. I, I don't think anybody who hires at Bonsai has ever thought about the name or the quality or the, or the I should say, the perceived quality of the institution, whether you did a diploma course, you know, um, at whatever institution or you did um, an MBA at Rotman does not matter to us. Do you demonstrate a knack and an inquisitive inquisitiveness to learn more? That is what we'd call grit, uh, or that would be growth. And then, you know, are you going to just pound the pavement and do the job that's necessary until it gets done? That would be the grit component. The grit and growth are, I would say, um, Andrew, our CEO, has done a great job of defining those as, like, traits we look for in human beings. Um, and then generally look for people who are kind of quirky. Like, you know, we're not just hiring quirk for quirk's sake, but we generally find that if somebody demonstrate grit, demonstrates grit and growth, they're probably the least charismatic in the interview process. I'll tell you honestly, like, um, I'm a conventionally outgoing person. Uh, I am the minority of people here by a, by a huge, by, by a huge proportion. Like if you talk to the people here, I'll give you an example. At Bonsai, more than 60% of our development team dance professionally outside of work. That is like a ridiculous metric. And I learned that in the development community, a really interesting co-curricular they have is salsa dancing because it helps with developers who are oftentimes shy and they build social skills through dance. So if you actually go in our lunchroom, like 30 minutes ago, there are people dancing, like practicing. These grown developer men are dancing with each other. And it's a particularly, it's like a weird thing to see, right? So there's that that's kind of interesting. The kind of, you know, things that we do as a team are not like 
people play weird board games, you've got puzzles everywhere. It's not like a, a conventionally cool group of hipster millennial people sitting around an office, like all, all looking sharp. It's like a bunch of interesting models. And every time I see that, I'm like, okay, we have a real team here. Because it's great to paint a picture of like a perfectly diverse, you know, uh, late stage startup company where everyone looks interesting, but has nothing interesting to say. We have developers here who have never, ever written a line of code uh, in a consumer or even like for-profit company before. They are researchers in labs helping with stem cell programming. Like It's like they have no interest in content or commerce other than like solving the problem, technical problem. But that for me is like always a good sign. Um, hmm. That's what we look for. So if you're weird, please apply. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, man. Well, it's also so relative. Like, uh, and, and quickly, actually, I, I really like the fact that you don't look at names of universities. I was listening to uh, uh, quickly a, le- a lecture about uh, about this with Jordan Peterson, uh, but he basically mentions that like unless you go to the biggest B schools of like Harvard, MIT, even with that, the the actual substance of the education is not going to be the differentiating factor. What pe- the reason why people hire from these schools is, is is the the process that you have to go through to get in. He's like, that's actually the value. It's not really the value of education. He's like, once you're in, the, the four years are essentially the same. Right. You know, maybe the quality of the professors will change. But even then, um, you know, you only can learn so much within four years. You yeah. know, you're only capable of, of so many hours of being in the library or being in a classroom or doing something on the side, whatever. So, um, but I like that. One question for you on, on this topic, too, is how do you define leadership? It's a great question. Um I think that we've seen in the past two years, people rise from the ranks of being a like part-time developer to a director of development. I think he's going to get embarrassed that I'm calling him out, but um, you know, people have gone from being really, really good at a task and seeing them blossom into people who have ownership and responsibility. Um, so that doesn't answer your question. That's like on, as, as a preamble, it's like a really rewarding feeling to see someone grow that much. Like I think the biggest part of this that's rewarding is seeing the personal growth of people you work with. Like, honestly, genuinely mean that because the people you hire kind of become your babies, uh, of, like to some extent. And their success or failure is kind of ultimately on you as like a caretaker. Um, although they're all capable of taking care of themselves, they don't need me. Um, I think what we look for in leaders, uh, leadership is not equated to title. That's really important. Um, when we were designing our compensation plan or our options incentive plan, uh, same guy, Andrew, his numbers guy. Um, we looked at, you know, why is it that people who are perhaps ranked higher in the company should receive more options than less than people who are just contributors? Like, why is it that one developer who writes really good code and is an exceptional senior developer should be entitled to less ownership simply because he or she does not want to manage a team of 10 people? Is managing bodies equatable to leadership? And what we find, what we believe here is that leadership is a really strong senior developer or a a junior salesperson who sets the standard in his immediate or her immediate circle of people. And if they can do that, that's that's leadership. Like if if we can have one BDR business development rep, as we've clarified, uh, who's maybe junior and entry level perhaps, telling all the other BDRs around them that, look, we have to increase our outbound by 10% or the funnel's broken in this particular area, that's leadership. It doesn't need to be a VP of partnerships. So I think what we're looking for is people who take ownership of their function, really important in the startup, who can perform with minimal direction, 
um, like I, I can identify an area that they own and be like, look, I don't care. You don't need to tell me what to do. Tell me the end state and I'll come up with my own plan. I may be wrong. You don't have to course correct me if I'm wrong, but like tell me the end state. And I, I want to try and navigate the path to the end state. So I think that's what we look for in leaders. And I think it's important to clarify that like leadership should not be equated to title seniority because it's like we've seen lack of leadership in really senior people and we've seen tremendous leadership in really junior people. And a lot of that leadership, George, manifests in culture. Like who's going to organize a company fireside event? Like tomorrow is a salsa themed fireside. We do fireside every two weeks and it's an opportunity to do a retrospective, but it starts like 3 p.m. and goes till midnight. And like people bring their spouses, their partners, their dogs, like babies. Like it's a crazy time every two weeks. And so every every biweekly event is organized by a new employee. So that's leadership. Um, it's just not done by the CTO or the COO or the CEO. It doesn't need to be done by them. So yeah, that's an amazing answer, man. Really. Uh, I was actually think like thinking about this. I always tell people this. My favorite guests are ones when I'm actually thinking uh, like deeply, and I'm not even thinking about the next question. But <laughs> what I what I did. Think- was uh, the book uh, The Leader Who Had No Title by Raman Sharma uh, who's a UFT grad as well he wrote The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari for anyone interested uh, really touches on what you were saying uh, he basically like the main character runs into different uh, individuals along his kind of journey you know one would be for example a cleaning lady at a hotel but she has so much leadership leadership lessons because what you were saying she really takes her role seriously and because she takes her role seriously she's engaging with different clients who come to the hotel some of them CEOs VPs, prime ministers, and she's really engaging and she's learning from those conversations. Right. So anyways, it's just a, it's an interesting fable, uh, whoever, whoever's interested, but I, I really like that answer. The, the concentric circle that kind of comes out of an individual, it doesn't matter who the individual is, we're looking at whose circle is larger. That's leadership. And if your circle is really small because you're a great employee and you're a great contributor, you don't need to be classified as leader, you're a great contributor. But if you're a contributor who's got an amazing, like super wide circle, like the radius is big, your circle of people who you're influencing is larger. So you're a leader. The title leadership is, is bullshit. It absolutely means nothing. Because um, mm-hmm. a lot of senior people who we've come across, and not in our business, but we interact with other companies all the time, I'm like, are you really leading? Or you just have a big title? Um, so yeah. Do you find it difficult to, to, to manage or lead people who are older than you? I really actually wanted to ask you this. All the time, every day, all day long. How do you, man? Um, How do you, what- my defective position is always that well, what do I know? This person's been around doing this thing longer than I've been alive, perhaps. And I think that you have to take a step back. And if you're a CEO, a founder, a senior leader in a company, you have to be like, I'm here. It's like a really weird exercise if you're not a total narcissist, where you're like, I'm good at what I do. I've made it far enough. Why am I here? And why is that person not there? Not because they're bad or not good at what they do, but they've made a decision to not be here because they've had more opportunity, more time to get here. So you kind of parse through all those questions, like, okay, I am qualified. And honestly, it's just like a mental thing for many, many, even to this day, you have to remind yourself, like, hey, by the way, like, you're the CEO of the company. And like 32, 33 people's salaries depend on you. So if you have an option between going out on Friday night or spending another three hours in the office, you're going to pick, you know, sometimes you pick the former because it's good for your mental health. Sometimes you pick the latter because you just have to do it. So I, I think like, uh, how I've dealt with the issue of everyone around me being older than me is just kind of have, age is super unimportant to me. I don't think we hire like it, it, the experience point that I brought up from Paul Graham. Like it's it's a really good one. Like age, same thing that leadership is not equatable to title, and age is not necessarily equatable to experience because um, you can be doing the same thing and not have a lot of mobility in that role for a long time and not learn that much. Um, 
Now, the inverse is also true. It's not true that all millennial people who are collegiate aged and have an elite education and are privileged and have grown up around a lot of people who have given them insight should run a company. That is like not the intended outcome here. It should not give false confidence to people in the audience who are like that. Um, running a company is tough. And there is no doubt in my mind that I would be a million times better had I been double my age. No question. Do you find no. it tough to balance the social aspect too? Like you gave that metaphor between the weekend and, and spending three hours of work. When that comes up, how, how, how do you keep balance when, when you're faced with a dilemma like this? I work a very normal amount of hours, to be totally honest with you. I don't work 75 hours a week. I work like 45, 50 hours a week. Oh. When I work, I'm working. I don't wake up at six. I don't meditate. I sleep in with everybody else. I don't have a green kale, you know, lima beans. I don't, I don't meditate. I don't do yoga. My lifestyle, I would classify as moderately unhealthy. I don't care about what I eat, what I drink. Like, I don't have a life where I'm like super calibrated about any of that stuff. I work a normal amount of hours. I'm a person who likes to go out with my friends and party just as much as everybody else. And I try to make time for that. I try to not work on weekends. Like, obviously, it's always on your mind. You never have downtime. And I'm not necessarily saying, I'm not saying that I'm lazy, but I actually don't work an insane amount of hours. Um, and I do that on purpose. And I think that's an, when I come to the office for the 10 hours or nine hours that I'm here, it's a good nine or 10 hours. But when I go home, I'm not working or I try not to work. So oh, that's I, amazing. I wake up at 4.45 and go for a 25-kilometer hike and then, you know, climb Mount Everest and back and drink kale smoothies. And But, like, that doesn't sound realistic. Like, if you're spending all that, like, you know, energy running around Toronto in circles to be, like, healthy and a, you know, young, active millennial CEO, like, I don't know how you show up to work in the morning not hating everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I. I really, really like that you're sharing in this answer, man. It's I think people are gonna find it refreshing. I mean, not so much from the unhealthy part. So yeah. I think we gotta work. <laughs> but uh, no. I'm healthy in that I don't care if I eat like five slices of pizza or if I'm gonna eat just McDonald's straight for three days. Like I don't care. I'm gonna order yes. reads because there's you know like the this the the surge is lower than it normally is, and that's the end of that. Like <laughs> funny, man. So it's all good. Enjoy enjoy these uh, these next like five years, and you can. You know, we, we can we can work on this. Don't worry. Exactly. There you go. Amazing, dude. I got one more for you. I appreciate your time for um. You know, this is honestly probably one of my favorite podcasts to date, and I've done this is the forty fourth. So, awesome. Uh, last question for someone listening to this. I always ask, especially coming from you, this is going to be instrumental. So I'm really looking forward to this answer. But what advice would you give to someone looking to start a venture who's in their twenties? Sure. I would uh, repeat my earlier point, but maybe expand a little bit. I would really, really get you to question your assumption on why you think you should start a venture. And I think if you can come up with a good answer, let, let's think, let's define what a good answer is. A good answer is that, and this is going to be an unpopular answer, um, but a good answer is if you believe that you have access, capacity, and the willingness to be able to rough it because you're going to have to like rough it and ride out a lot of difficulty. Being a, being foolhardy about access will do no good. It's really hard to build access, which is why if you don't have access to things like people and resources and you don't know how to conduct yourself at a dinner or you don't know how to schmooze an investor, like if you don't have those skills or you don't think you develop those skills quickly enough, do not try. They are a prerequisite. Okay. There's just no, there's just no lying about that. You're not going to be successful. I believe now, there are exceptions. There's certain extremely, extremely focused subject matter experts. Like you are the best machine learning guy in Toronto or girl 
and you have such a tight skill, you'll have to find a co-founder who can support you through this process. And then there'll be a million people putting their hands all over you trying to get their hands on your talent. That's an exception. Assuming that the vast majority of people are not that good at most things, myself included, you have to be really good at those things first in terms of access. Then you have to have capacity. So can you actually execute? If you go out and secure money, you secure partners, you do anything, do you have the capacity to execute? Emotional, like, are you a person who can handle stress or not? Like, you have to be realistic about these things. Like, I've generally been a thick-skinned person all the time. But do you actually, if you're like a super emotional person who gets easily overwhelmed, like, to be honest, probably not for you. Like, I don't think this is something that people should do if they're, you know, if they have a, if they're lighthearted, it's not something to do. And the third thing is like, you know, are you willing? Like there's going to be an unbelievable amount of uncertainty in your life forevermore while you do this thing. That's not going to change. So you kind of have to just like be willing, have capacity and have access. I think those are the three questions that you should be able to answer in reflecting on whether or not you should start something. Idea aside, money aside, like team aside, those are the three questions and they're very, very personal to you. And if you don't have answers to those questions, you can't buy your, you can, you can buy your way around a technical co-founder. You can buy your way around, you can even pivot your idea a hundred times without consequence. You can even go out and raise money. But those are three things that affect the founder. Um, and that's like the first thing that come to mind. I could probably, maybe I should write down a list of a hundred things that I think you need to have. New ebook. Well, but yeah, <laughs> maybe if we got more time, I would do that. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate this. Um, for anybody listening, connect uh, and, and definitely, I mean, follow up with, with Sad. He's a great guy, super down to earth. And I just appreciate you doing this, man. Really. No worries. Thank you, George. Appreciate the opportunity.